Welcome to Hippie Witch, magic for a new age. I'm your host, Joanna DeVoe, and this is a happy, hippie place where magic with a K meets the law of attraction. Hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for episode 377 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe and I am the kooky creatrix behind Kick-Ass Switch, Putting the K in Magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit. And you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com or back on the description page for this episode back on Blog Talk Radio where you will also find a link to today's extremely interesting, extra special guest, Mitch Horowitz, who is an occultist, an author, a speaker, an all-round super fascinating guy, one of these people who can just riff, just speak at top of mind about all things having to do with the occult, new thought movement, law of attraction, magic, going back centuries. He's so interesting and he was well worth the wait. So instead of sitting here flapping my gums about how much I love his new book, The Miracle Club, which I'm pretty certain you all are going to love too. We'll just let him tell us all about it in his own words. So without any further ado, here he is, Mitch Horowitz. Hi, Mitch. Welcome to Hippie Witch. (laughs) All right. Great to be here. Thank you. Yes, I'm really excited to have you on the show because I recently found your book, The Miracle Club, and... It was a very personal book for me. I've been doing this podcast now for six years, and I felt like everything I've talked about here, you said with more confidence and more authority in the most entertaining way in this one book that I am strongly urging all my listeners to get, The Miracle Club. Thank you. Thank you so much. It meant a lot to me uh, to write this book because it, it was my first really practical book, and I just appreciate what you said, because I, I feel like you understand exactly what I was trying to accomplish with it. I think you did a real service to those of us who talk about the New Thought Movement, the old New Thought Movement, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the law of attraction, things like that. You took a lot of, I feel like, the stigma out of it, but you also address, I feel like there's a shaming component to some, mm-hmm. a lot of the law of attraction messages that, yes. like, if your life sucks, it's your fault. Right. I, I think you're right. And I know there's a lot of law of attraction folk who would dispute that. But at the heart of it, I think you're absolutely right. And I think we have to be able to talk bluntly among ourselves about these things. And one of the things that I have found frustrating and that lots of my colleagues on the path have found frustrating is really just what you were saying, that if somebody... Uh, attempts to harness and use the causative powers of the mind and something doesn't work and it goes wrong and they don't get the result they want, they're always sort of sent back to the drawing board. And the implication is that they didn't do something, the, the procedure right, that their thoughts weren't properly aligned. And rather than sending somebody back to the drawing board, I think uh, a better approach for all of us and a more productive approach would be to ask, well, let's see what did go wrong, because maybe there's something wrong with our ideas rather than being wrong 
with the individual using them. And if we can start from there, we may come up with better and more practical methods. And I think we should never be afraid to say that uh, we've made a mistake, we've gotten something wrong. And, and, and if we can be brave enough and functional enough to do that, we might come up with more effective means and technologies to use. Yeah, I, I've heard you say, say something to the effect that this movement never developed a philosophy of suffering. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Like, what would that philosophy look like? Yeah, that's the primary Achilles heel, I think, of the new thought and positive mind and law of attraction movement. It, 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 it was wonderful, and it has remained wonderful, at developing a popular literature, and very often a very good and very alluring popular literature, but it hasn't come to terms with the persistence of suffering, the fact that some people contract and will die from terminal diseases or have to live with chronic pain. And my contention is that we live under many different laws and forces, of which the law of mental creativity is one very deeply vital component but there are other things going on in life and that we live under we live within a framework in which we are conscripted to experience suffering and physical decline and ultimate demise and in which there are many different things that are impacting how we're going to experience the laws of mental causality in the same way that we're going to experience gravity differently if we're on the moon versus earth versus jupiter Gravity is ever operative, it's lawful, but circumstances also matter. Mass affects the law of gravity. And if we can begin to acknowledge and come to terms with this fact in terms of mental causality, it keeps us from blaming the individual if something doesn't go according to plan, and it gives us possible ways of applying the law that are more flexible and more useful and more powerful, ultimately. Mm. And my sense of things, I mean, there's, there's so much, you know, to unpack within that question. I, I don't want to go into too much of it. But my sense of things is that we're selecting possibilities within our world all the time. And we're selecting them outside of a linear framework. But at the same time, we are unable within the frame of reference and the sphere of reality that we occupy to experience the ultimate causality of thought. I think that it is very possible, and I believe it to be so, that awareness or intelligent choice is somehow the ultimate arbiter of reality. I believe that to be the case, and I unpack that in the book. But at the same time, we occupy a vantage point from which we cannot fully enter into that perception. Mortality alone tells us that. There's never been an exception to that. Right. So, you know, if we can start from that perspective, we can agree, yes, although theoretically we understand things like light speed, we may never be able to fully experience light speed, at least in this sphere of existence. And I think the same thing is true, I mean, as individuals. And I think the same thing is true uh, in terms of mental causality. Uh, otherwise, there would be exceptions to things to which there have never been exceptions. 
and uh, and I'm speaking primarily in this case of our uh, the, the the delicateness of of the human life form. So we know from that alone that we 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 cannot, except for absolutely exquisite moments and moments that pass, experience the totality of mental causation. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean mental causation isn't there. It means that it's complicated and there's a lot intervening between us and ultimate reality. And if we can deal with that, uh, it gives us greater possibilities, I think, for uh, using these laws, which I surmise do exist. Yes, I think I love the example of gravity because gravity is a law. We all acknowledge it. But then, yes. you know, many of us have experienced going into a, a weightlessness situation, yes. like those special yes. rooms or whatever. And that's an exception. And what you're saying, too, I love the possibilities. I like to see how far I can go. I have failed many, 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 many times in performing mm-hmm. magic and the law of attraction. I probably fail more often than not, but the yes. ta- the times that I succeed are so thrilling. I'm like, what else can I do? You know, it's very yes. exciting. Yes. yes. And I do believe that, that you're absolutely right. Your instinct is right. We, I think that we do have moments of ultimate perspective and ultimate awareness. I think, and in fact, sometimes we experience these things at times of euphoria. Sometimes we experience them at times of deep grief. You know, whatever happens in our lives that sort of freezes up or shocks or stills our conventional and habituated reactions can open us up to incredible perspective. And as you were just saying, I probably have had more failures than successes as well. But when the successes come, there is such an extraordinary congruity that they go beyond anything that could be classified as confirmation bias or something. I mean, they are really uh, of a quality that, that goes outside of anything else you've ever experienced. And then they're gone. And mm-hmm. then they're gone. And we can't hang on to them. And we can't necessarily repeat them. But they give us a sense of, okay, there's a vein of gold there. This is where to keep digging. And it's, it's, it's almost impossible, I think, according to human behavior, to not want to keep digging when you know you've found truth. And, and so I want us to dig, and I want us to dig with great, uh, a great sense of thrill and possibility and experimentation. But we shouldn't necessarily assume that because something happened once, it must repeat or it must repeat in exactly the same way. It's a very tantalizing place from which to launch future experiments. Mm. It's a bit like chasing the metaphysical dragon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it really is. Yeah, yeah. I, you're a very, I love the dose of skepticism and the emphasis on experimentation, but it also is a very optimistic book. And those things can coexist. Yes, yes. And I think they really must. You know, what what drives us forward in terms of any kind of experimentation other than the possibility of maybe, you know, and, and people will talk about the flaw and the problem of researchers wanting to get a, a certain result. But I think that, that that's more of an ethic than it is a flaw. I mean, somebody who's researching a cure to cancer, of course, he or she knows what they're after and is passionate to find it, but must take certain steps not to be delusive about it at the same time. But if they didn't think it was possible to find a cure for cancer, then uh, just apathy would take over. I mean, you have to have some sense of 
true possibility and and yes optimism and a sense of this radical maybe and a wish to keep verifying things in order for any experiments to occur at all i mean the the very fact of discovery is incumbent upon the seeker or the experimenter or the researcher to have a sense of of radical maybe and it's so wonderful because we 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 know so little of the conditions surrounding us and our even say in the past 150 years, our concepts of what the mind is capable of have grown and grown and grown. And as long as no one is engaged in any kind of endangering or ruinous behavior, my feeling is there should be no limits whatsoever on a person's uh, sense of experimentation. I want people to know um, that you are a prolific author and teacher, and I want to ask you how you got to be so interested in the occult. But before, but before I get into all of that, because I have a feeling it'll be juicy, <laughs> I, I have to say, I, there were many times when I was reading this book that it felt almost spooky to me because you hit on like every important breadcrumb on my path like the very first two books when I left Christianity in my teens and started exploring that really thrilled me was James Allen as a man thinketh and Anthony Robbins book awaken the giant within this has been Mm -hmm. almost 30 years now and I still refer to those books (laughs) yes and and then the thing that got me interested in exploring witchcraft was actually nature and buddhism and oh, the, the chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, I, I cannot explain the miracles that happened from doing that chant. It was just so beyond what was seemingly possible for me at the time. I was like, this, wow. this is magic. So you, yes. hit, you hit on all those things on, in the book. The way the story you told about James Allen just made me fall madly in love with him like all the more it was so personal the whole book is very personal and filled with great stories i think it's just so readable and entertaining it's not just a text um so why how are why are you mitch how did you get to be mitch horowitz why are you this guy that travels around and makes these little movies or big movies (laughs) and writes these books and 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 i see that you are the editor-in-chief at a publishing house like how did you get there well you know i think i've always had a sense from when i was a little kid of wanting to defend misfits, I think. And I always believed that there was something sacred about people and ideas that didn't fit in. You know, it's funny, as as you're framing that question to me, I think you've helped me understand a, a dream that I had when I was four years old, one of my actually earliest memories and one of the earliest dreams that I could ever recall having. And I've always wondered my whole life what was behind it. And I think you, your question and the way you framed it have just revealed to me finally uh, at age 53 what was behind this dream that I had almost, almost half a century ago. So thank you. I'll tell you the dream. When I was a kid, uh, I grew up in the borough of Queens in New York City. And we grew up in this working class neighborhood called Glen Oaks. And there were attached houses assembled into little courts in in Glen Oaks. And one of the girls who lived in our court was a girl named Eleanor, who was deaf. And I had this dream one night that Eleanor had been kidnapped by these bad guys 
and uh, we were standing, a circle of my friends were standing around, kind of like the Scooby-Doo kids, asking ourselves, you know, what, what do we do? And I was saying to them, we got to save Eleanor. And I think I've always had that drive to defend people who are perceived or ideas that are perceived as not belonging, as being part of the fringe or as uh, misfits or what have you. And when I was a kid, I know I took a very early interest in radical politics and in the occult. I remember my sister in elementary school bringing home books by Carlos Castaneda, and there were books in the house on Bigfoot and flying saucers and ESP. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I was just possessed of the indelible sense that there was something here. There was something here, even though some of the stuff was rendered into very popular or even sensationalistic forms. I knew that that there 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 was some again some vein of gold here. There was some kernel of truth here that couldn't be thrown away, and you had to start digging. And I always had that wish. And for much of my life through adolescence, early adulthood, that probably more took the form of politics. But when I was in my early 30s, I was just burnt out on politics, and I got a job at a New Age publishing company, which I eventually became editor-in-chief of. I'm no longer there. Uh, you know, Right now, I dedicate all my time to writing and speaking and so on. But I came to dig and read more deeply into the lives of some of these people that we're talking about, James Allen and Ernest Holmes and Madame H. P. Blavatsky and all kinds of occult and esoteric and mystical figures. And I came to feel that for whatever their flaws or foibles may have been, these people really lived for something. They did extol a set of ideas that, imperfect though they may have been, offered real truth and possibilities and practicalities and opportunities for freedom to people. So that became my dedication. And I think it was probably all an extension in a way of that dream that I had when I was four years old of just wanting to say, you know, because something is off the wall doesn't mean that it should be excluded. In fact, the, 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 the rejected stone shall be the cornerstone as, as it was said in, um, uh, Proverbs and later repeated by Christ. And it seems to me that there are rejected stones out there that have great value, and my wish is to re-examine and reintegrate these rejected stones. Fascinating. I can imagine my audience right now, they're like, yes, we love Mitch Horowitz. <laughs> I'm, very new, I'm very new to you. I think I've known who you are for a while, like years probably. Just like, I know the name. I know it's the guy with the tattoos and the glasses. But um, a, friend, a friend gave me uh, a book for my birthday a couple of years ago, called, or maybe even just a year ago, called Infinite Possibility. And you wrote the foreword to the yes. book. And yeah. and then I was like, why do I know this guy? How do I know this guy? And then I realized that you narrated quite a few of the audiobooks I have of oh. um, Neville Goddard, like Re- Resurrection, Feelings yeah. the Secret. And so yeah. I'm a Twitter nerd. I love Twitter. So I started following you on Twitter and I was like, what is this? thing about the miracle club and then i was like okay fine i'm a fan i'm a fan oh thank you i appreciate it neville who you mentioned is he's probably the most influential figure in my life he was a a british barbadian mystic who lived and worked in america died in 1972 and 
Neville taught that your imagination is God and that everything you see and experience is born of your own mental pictures and your own emotionalized thoughts. And Neville has been kind of a wonderful role model for me because he promulgated these radical ideas, and yet he was such an appealing, relatable, approachable figure. And I always just love that about him. I, I feel that if somebody is offering a perspective that's really worth examining, that person, him or herself, if it's a piece of ethical philosophy rather than you know computer coding or something else, if it's a piece of philosophy that governs how the individual seeks to live, then the individual, him or herself, should be approachable, relatable, appealing. I mean, they have to be a reflection of their philosophy to some degree, to some degree. So I very often enter into ideas through the personality of the figure. Uh, you were mentioning James Allen, who wrote As a Man Thinketh, and in the book I talk about his childhood, which really was a very brutal childhood, and he led a kind of Dickensian life filled with reversals and difficulties and hardships that are difficult for many of us in the West in the 21st century to relate to, but he was real, and he did die very young, but, but he... He became a, a, a symbol of his own philosophy. He, his, his philosophy of mental creativity played a concrete role in lifting him up from a very impoverished, desperate childhood to a life in which, look, we're talking about him today. And the man died uh, over a century ago, and I think he did live out the nature of his own philosophy. And I feel very strongly about that. You know, sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, my shrink said this to me, or my minister said this to me, and, you know, what do you think? And I always have to remind people and also remind myself that we have to be very careful that when people say things to us, offer us a principle, a dictum, an idea, that they have, that they're speaking from experience, that they are speaking from experience. Just because someone says they're thinking from experience does not mean that they are. You know, I mean, unfortunately, absolutely, people will cop to things they do not do. I mean, I have run into people who can speak beautifully about the uh, the usefulness and the magic of tithing, for example, who do not tithe. And <laughs> It is more common than one would like to think. And I've, I've noticed, I mean, even in my own experience, I noticed that sometimes people will come to me because they're looking for counsel or an answer to something. And you get into this dynamic where the person seated on the other side of the table from you sees you as the man with the plan. And it's theater. You know, it's really theater. And Lots of people take advantage of that theater, sometimes knowingly, sometimes not knowingly. There are a lot of ministers, a lot of... YouTube, YouTube gurus. YouTube gurus, gurus of every stripe, shrinks, who they're, they're aware, either implicitly or explicitly, that the people who are, are approaching them might be in some kind of crisis or at least feeling anxiety about something, and they, they view this person and they want to view this person as a source of authority, and it's amazing how quickly that bit of theater can just take flight. And lo and behold, the the guru or the minister or the shrink or whomever says something, and it's seen as being authoritative, but the root of the word authoritative or authority is author, and I want to know 
whether the person who's saying something has been able to verify it in his or her own experience, not just proffering it as a pretty idea. And I find that such cases are quite rare, quite rare. So what I'm really just trying to say is that I always look for the person first, the person first. And I tend to enter the philosophy through the person because I think that all of us must verify the ideas that we're living with and must not allow anybody else to to do it for us. And and once you get into doing that, you can make incredible discoveries. You know, there might be things that you've heard all your life, like money doesn't bring happiness. Uh, you know, maybe money does bring happiness for some people. And I encourage an individual to explore that question on his or her own rather than adopting that point of view because somebody somewhere who might not have ever had money, for example, I'm just using that as an errant example, but somebody somewhere who might not have money said that, and it sounds true because it's been so widely repeated, and it may in, indeed be true. I love and, that science explored that. Like, this research came out in recent years where they're saying, actually, I think it was a $50,000 was the magic number or something. Yes, that, yes. like actually money does buy happiness yes, yes. <laughs> and then they like proved it and then they said after that point not so much but to I, to a point it does yes like destitution brings sorrow and anxiety mm-hmm. and a certain sum of money seems to bring happiness but then multiples of that don't there seems to be a point of diminishing returns so Absolutely. i found that very interesting and of course individuals are radically different you know uh um you know, there might be a certain person who, for, for whom large sums of money actually do bring happiness, and another person for whom that's not true. I, I, I'm not fixated on money so much. I'm just saying that everybody should seek to verify these things for themselves. And, and, and your discoveries can be incredible because we spend so little, we place so little stock in, in, in verifying things. And yes. once we do, it can bring us tremendous independence of thought. Well, I think what you admire about figures like Neville Goddard is what I admire about you. I like your emphasis on experimentation. It actually made me cry at the end of the James Allen uh, chapter. I wrote this down, what his wife said after he died. She, She said he never wrote theories or for the sake of writing, but he wrote when he had a message, and it became a message only when he had lived it out in his own life and knew that it was good. Thus, he wrote wrote facts, which he had proven by practice. Yes, yes. That was the beautiful thing about him. He really did attempt in every way to live out his ideas. And the people who I dwell upon in the Miracle Club and in other books are usually that, that kind of person. You know, sometimes it's people who didn't write their first books until late in life because they were experimenting, they were trying. And I just, I love those kinds of people. They had no business apparatus at their back. They were almost these itinerant figures who wrote their books, wrote their pamphlets, spoke at metaphysical churches or in auditoriums. And they were figures of great sincerity. I and mean, they really were, first and foremost, ethical philosophical experimenters. And Alan was was one of the prime examples. Mm. As an, I, I'm really interested in 
the project that delayed me from getting to interview you the first time when you went to Egypt. That sounds <laughs> oh, yeah. so cool. Like you're doing some <laughs> movie-ish situation about the right. Kabbalion. Right. <laughs> you're doing so many things. I definitely would love to know about that. But also there's a chapter, I think it's called The One Thing in this book, that kicked my ass because I do this podcast, I do coaching, I'm on Patreon, I've been trying to write the same novel series forever. <laughs> and you said something about that you reject the notion that you can be anything that you dream up, that not all desires are realistic, and that your best shot is to really, like, focus on one thing. So as a man who does many things, <laughs> yeah. how, is, how is this working out for you? Well, you know, I, I check myself on that all the time, and I would say my primary focus is to chronicle metaphysical experience. That's my focus. That's your and one I, thing. That's my one thing, to chronicle metaphysical experience in history and in practice. And I do it in books. I do it on uh, uh, in interviews like this one. I do it uh, through my narration. I do it in movies and television shows or web shows. I do it in articles. But that is my passion, to chronicle metaphysical experience. And I, I think I've stuck really quite close to that. There are other things that I get a hankering to do sometimes, there's a part of me that wishes to return to acting, and you know I love being uh, involved with screen projects. But if ever I do that, I think it would almost it, it, it would have to tie in. It would have to tie in to what I do in terms of chronicling metaphysical experience. And I think that usually, if you look at people you admire, they tend to do one thing really well. And there's a lot of famous people and a lot of accomplished people who have wanted to branch out, and very often, frankly, it didn't really work. You know, I mean, Norman Mailer wanted to be an actor, and he would occasionally act in plays, but nobody remembers Norman being in plays, you know. Mm. Um, I often tell people, Mick Jagger has never recorded a successful solo album. And, like, why is that, you know? He's a brilliant businessman, he's very canny, he's a brilliant artist, but the chemistry with the Rolling Stones is what worked for him. And if the Rolling Stones ever broke up, which obviously they never will, um, you know, he didn't, he would be rich, but he didn't really have a plan B because it, it, nothing else that he has ventured into, and he's ventured into plenty, has been a mark of, of distinction. He gets to do that because he's Mick Jagger. But the fact is, usually we do one thing really well, even if we channel it through different uh, media. And I, I work with lots of media, but my thing is to document the metaphysical. Mm. I didn't, and the history of being an actor too, like to me, I say this all the time, studying method acting is one of the best trainings for performing magic and learning. Yes, it's extraordinary, right? Sense memory and learning to hold so your true. attention and all that stuff. And, um, and I'm sure it's helpful with this project that you're working on. Are you able to tell us or willing to tell us why you oh, went to sure. Egypt? Oh, by all means. Um, I'm working with the director, Ronnie Thomas, who directed Midnight Archive and many wonderful things. And he and I are making a documentary about uh, the occult book, The Kabbalion, which I've been writing about quite a bit over the past year or two. And I've come to feel that this book, which at one time I dismissed as a kind of a novelty of early 20th century occultism, is not a novelty at all, but actually retains some really important ideas 
about Hermeticism, Hermeticism being the uh, ancient Egyptian Greek philosophy that developed in the city of Alexandria in the uh, decades immediately following Christ. It, it has a lot in common with some of our contemporary mystical and new thought philosophies in that it sees the mind as an agent of creativity. And the Kabbalion does a pretty good job of dramatizing and retaining some of the core ideas of Hermeticism. And I've grown to love the book very deeply. And it's probably the most widely read underground book and occult book of the 20th century. It really captures people. It has captured me uh, very deeply, and 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 that's after I was apt to underestimate it. You know, years ago, I circled back around to it. So we're doing a documentary about what is this thing called hermeticism? What is the hermetic? Where did it come from? How did it develop? What is this mysterious book that's that's got such a hold, maintained such a hold on modern spiritual seekers over the past century? And why is this book something very close to what it claims to be, which is a, a master key to a lot of different occult systems and philosophies? Uh, a lot of what you and I have been talking about over the past half hour is uh, can be found in the Kabbalion. It's framed very well in the Kabbalion. It's not the only place these ideas are framed, but they're framed there with a particular elegance. You know, why the mind is causative, but why we also face uh, limitations and why... For example, as you were saying, studying method acting is wonderful training for practicing any kind of magic, which is actually true because so much of magic and so much of new thought involves going into a certain feeling state, adopting a, a feeling of the wish fulfilled in a certain sense. And that seems to release something that goes beyond the physical within the human constitution. And the Kabbalion covers a lot of this material with a great deal of drama, uh, some degree of novelty, some degree of artifice and mystery, but 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 with a, a, a really surprising amount of deeply penetrating, rich, powerful ideas. So we are doing a documentary about this book and about the ancient occult or mystical philosophies that are retained, at least in part, uh, within the book. And our director, Ronnie Thomas, felt that it was very important for us to go on location uh, to Egypt to look at some monuments, symbols, base reliefs, and that must have sucked for of, you. Yeah, it was horrible. It was just terrible than <laughs> anyone. Um, you know, he wanted us to go back to to the wellspring of all this, and and so yeah, it was it was just awful, boring. Um, and, uh, <laughs> needless to say, it was the experience of a lifetime. Yeah. And, and I posted some stills um, uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, and we're still a ways from completing it. You know, it's probably not going to be out, I would imagine, uh, for at least a year from today. Uh, we're still shooting it, but it was very important to us to go to Egypt and really um, document, lay down, shoot, photograph the sights and sounds and monuments and symbolism that uh, underscore uh, the book in its most foundational way. Mm. I'm definitely looking forward to that. I'm a person, I feel like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Like, with, <laughs> with, the, with 
anything new agey. Like when you first get into it, when you're young, it's like, oh, this mu- this is so exciting. And then it's like, no, yeah. that's not true. No, that's not true. There's all the debunkers, and you're like, what is the truth? I don't even know anymore. Like people just make things up, and because it's yeah. a 100 year old book, like somehow that gives it some sort of validity. So I'm interested to see what kind of facts you guys can dig up and yeah yeah it's it's such a fascinating thing because you know when i first read the book i thought it was new thought dressed up in you know dramatic artificial egyptian costumery and i thought it was interesting but more from a historic perspective than as a fount of ideas and then one summer and i tell this story in the movie one summer about two years ago, I read the book five times in a row consecutively. I, I had found reference to the book in a variety of places, and I was sufficiently intrigued so that I thought I missed something here. And I went back to it, and I read it five times consecutively, and it just became central to my life. So it, it goes to show that revisiting something or taking a second look at something can also be incredibly fruitful because sometimes conditions in your own life change, and then the way you look at a book or a piece of art or something else can completely change. So second thoughts can also be incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I'm going to entertain myself while I wait for this documentary to come out by reading <laughs> Occult America. The subtitle is just beyond. White House seances, Ouija circles, Masons, and the secret mystery mystic history of our nation and my favorite review of this book on amazon (laughs) is so funny (laughs) somebody wrote well researched and not boring at all and i was like sold (laughs) i'd like that to be in my gravestone you know (laughs) (laughs) you at least need a t-shirt well researched and not boring at all yes i'm all for it (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for doing this can you tell people how to find you directly on the internet Sure. Uh, my website is MitchHorowitz.com. You can throw my name into Google. You'll find your way to the website. Uh, my email is there. If people write to me, I write back to them. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm super easy to find. You can throw my name into YouTube, and there's lots of lectures there and some many documentaries and film shorts and other things uh, that are lots of fun. And, uh, again, you know, just – Put my name into the search engine and you won't be able to get rid of me. Uh, the Miracle Club and Occult America and all my other books are available every place uh, you'd expect and uh, any place you buy books. This is all true. I know. Like when you first discover someone and you get that little crush thing and you Google them and it's like, holy crap, where do I even start? There's so much. You're very easy to find. Can I ask you one more quick question before we go? Of course. Absolutely. What is, it doesn't have to be the end-all, be-all, just the first thing that comes to mind. What is your one tip for creating the kick-ass life of your dreams? My one tip, and in all honesty, the one thing I would ask people to take from my work, if they take nothing else, is that well-roundedness is overrated. It's hugely important to hone in and focus in like a bloodhound on that one thing that you're about, that one thing that you're into. And when you can identify that one thing, let everything else be damned. You know, uh, it, 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 it can cover a lot of different bases and it can bring you so much goodness and such a sense of self-possession. You, the, there's great power, underappreciated power in concentration, in specificity, in dedicating your life, frankly, to one passionate pursuit. That is the way 
I think, the indispensable way to start to discover power within yourself. So awesome. Again, thank you. Thank you. This is well worth the wait. Thank you, Mitch Horowitz. Thank you for hanging in. I appreciate it. So that's that, my friends. How good is that? How good was that? Tell me. Tell me. You're all running out now to go get the Miracle Club, right? (laughs) It's as good as we made it sound. So if you run out to get the Miracle Club and you read it, please let me know what you think. I'm very interested to know what you all think about this. And last, the last episode here, I said I was going to start playing music at the end of these episodes and that I was trying to track down this band that my band, Obedient Waves, used to play with back in the day. But apparently they've all vanished into thin air. Stab City, where are you? Stab City is the name of the band. I used to love this band. I was so honored every time we got to share a bill with them. And I was completely convinced that they were going to be huge, like Nirvana huge. They were punk. They were loud. And I don't know if this will come across in the recording that I'm about to share with you, which I am about to share with you, even though I could not find any of the band members. Apparently, they don't exist anymore. But live, they were a complete thrill. The music was amazing. At the time that this song was recorded, their, their, uh, they, was he a bass player or a guitar player? No, I can't even remember. He was a guitar player, I think. Or was he the bass player? (laughs) Sailor was this guy. He would do like backbends while he was playing guitar. And the drummer, Bobby, was just like, bang, 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 bang. (laughs) They were all just incredible, just a really amazing band to to watch and to listen to. And the room was always feeling it. So it's very disappointing. This happens in Los Angeles. There are so many bands that are amazing that you think are going to be the next huge thing. And then they disband and you never hear from them again. That's some of the kind of music I want to play for you. (laughs) Today, I shall play The Psychic. The Psychic by... Stab City. So much love, peace. Please enjoy the psychic. 